To create profitability, you've got two different ways. You either grow revenue or you decrease expenses. And I think that there was a larger opportunity around at an office acquiring new patients. And I don't necessarily mean just like the tried and true marketing way of postcards and new patient mailers and things of that nature, but really having an incredible new patient onboarding program. Hey, Mike, thanks for coming to the practice. You've got your normal bag of goodies, but what are we doing that separate us from an onboarding experience for that new patient to then get that referral? Hey there, dental economist. If you're a dentist owner or a leader within a dental business thinking about growing production, case acceptance, patient and staff satisfaction, positive outcomes, and everything else that comes with running a dental business, then you're a dental economist and you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Dental Economist Show. We're meeting at the intersection of profit and purpose as I sit down with dental leaders who share their stories about dentistry, business, and growth. So welcome back to another episode of The Dental Economist Show. I'm your host, Mike Huffaker. In this episode, I'm joined by Brandon Halcott, a dynamic force in the dental industry. Brandon is the co-founder of Suva Dental, a company dedicated to supporting general practice dental offices and delivering exceptional care, focusing particularly on the Midwest and Southwest regions. Previously, Brandon built True Family Dental to over 20 practices in the Midwest before transacting the business in a strategic deal with Heartland. Brandon, welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much, Mike. Excited to be here. Yeah, I think you are actually our first official economist on the Dental Economist Show. So you actually do have a degree in economics from the University of Chicago. So I feel quite honored to have you join. And now I feel like we are being authentic in the name of this show. I know that Eric's going to be happy that we're bringing that authenticity here to the show. If we could do a prisoner's dilemma example at some point, that'd make me very happy. So in the spirit of economics, from a macroeconomic perspective, I'm curious, you know, it's roughly 10 years since you founded True Family, and now you're founding Subadental. What's different now in the economic environment when you kind of compare what you were navigating in the founding of True Family to what you're navigating today? It's crazy to think that it's been that long and what's transpired there from a macro environment perspective, uh, broad-based, what's going on in the overall world, the cost of capital, and then how the DSO industry has continued to mature during that period of time. In 14, there weren't a lot that was out there. And we collectively, you know, DSOs, I I'd say that wasn't totally acceptable yet from a consolidation perspective. With that, I mean, there's a lot that's still very similar, but I look to the Denicon and what you guys have been able to do there in terms of bringing technology to the industry. I look at the practice management software and other products within the practice on confirmation, retention for patients, finding new patients, phones. I mean, there's a lot that's advanced there. And then I think the recent challenges that came about during COVID, I mean, challenges or headwinds, if you would, from a business perspective, you had stable revenue in terms of reimbursement from carriers and increasing expenses through a couple like your supplies and, and the labor pieces there. So there was a challenging environment, but 
software and technology helped bring some of that back. So I, I, it's a, it's definitely a different landscape from when we got in 10 years ago and there's pluses and minuses, but still continues to be an incredible opportunity. There's a lot of runway for DSOs that are involved in the consolidation play. And there's also a lot of runway from a de novo perspective, because look, it's a stable industry. You've got people that should go twice a year. I use the word should and continues to be a lot of teeth in America. And the link between oral health and overall health, like that's also, I'd say patients are starting to understand that more as well at the same time. Yeah. You're talking about software and, and practice management. You were using Denicon at True Family. You're really ahead of your time. I was thinking about this earlier today. The fact that you had purchased Denicon, it must have been what, 2015 when you first decided to implement that in your practices. At that point, I know you initially launched with the acquisition of three offices. How many offices did you have when you began to implement the Denicon practice management software? I think it was five. And yeah, I always say that I wouldn't wish a practice conversion on my worst enemy. And so I try to, you know, put that in the PTSD category. We got to five and that's when we had Dentrix, EagleSoft, Mac Practice. You, you get the idea. There's a long tail of practice softwares. And we're like, wow, this is hard. And we always had known that we needed to have something. And it was really cool to build our business. And then to build alongside Blake and Eric, I mean, like one thing was we were using Apteryx and XVWeb independent, even before those became third parties within the Denicon universe, and then ultimately acquired them. And so, we, I mean, because we were solving problems like XVWeb and it's like an Android phone, it's ubiquitous to whatever your images are. And you know, we were trying to use technology back then to create you know, this ability to scale quickly and create like a, a flywheel to be able to continue to find new offices and grow and, and serve patients. And I look back and we did like a video back then with the Denicon team and, and Blake came out and directed that. And it was, we were all very hungry, incredibly new, at learning dental, and we were doing it together, which made it a lot of fun. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I was reflecting on that, that at that time, Planet DDS, then account was probably supporting just a few hundred offices. And there really had not yet been the establishment of credibility of cloud practice management solutions in the marketplace. In fact, none of the big legacy providers or large suppliers that everybody knows had developed and released to market a viable cloud solution at that time. And and even four years later, in 2019, when I joined Planet DDS, I remember the first conference I go to in Orlando, they do these breakout sessions. I go into this session, and the CEO of a 200-location DSO is in front of the room talking about practice management software and going, the cloud is absolutely not the way to go. I'm like, what have I gotten myself into here? This, this seems like I made a, a really poor decision in a career path. So when you did the purchase and decided to implement a cloud software back in 2015, what was it that kind of drove you to make that choice? I mean, I went out, I always talk that I had a PhD and probably still do in dental practice software management because you know, at that point, like Open Dental was there, but they had a LIFO FIFO issue where, I mean, and this is the granularity that I got down to. Why cloud? We look back like when we're building Seva this time, we're on Teams and you know, we've got SharePoint and we got Google product for email. Microsoft for all of our PowerPoint, Word, Excel, and then Dropbox. 
And I thought Dropbox was the coolest thing. And man, the sync was a problem. And my partner would yell at me. Eric thought Dropbox was the coolest thing too. We were using that up until like a year ago. And it, it was like, it became this monster inside our company. It was impressive. And your alternative was go to my PC, log me in. And right, there's tension there. And I, I don't like to, you know, as a human being, if there's a resistance, right? Like they always say, if you want to, you know, if you want to lose weight, don't buy anything that's bad. Right. And so there's some friction in the system there. And man, it was such a pain to like go remote into an office to then learn what was going on. And the mouse hadn't moved. So you couldn't connect or I mean, whatever it was. And I struggled with that. So then I'm like, okay, what are the alternatives? And you've got the server-based legacy Dentrix EagleSoft, and then you're building a crawler. And I'm like, I think those are like, you know, equity is your most precious resource when building a company. And why are we going to use equity dollars? Because you, know, you can't go fund that with debt. Why would we go fund the building of something from an engineering perspective to have software engineers put that in? Like, yeah, just like I didn't like that. So then you're okay. So if you put that to the side, so now EagleSoft is gone, Dentrix is gone, and you know, CareStream and some of these others that are, but it's basically EagleSoft and there's Dentrix Enterprise. And your terminal servers linked up and creating the, the local area network and the wide area network from like a hardcore network perspective, it just didn't seem cutting edge. And I know, and I'm talking to some other firms, there's, as soon as you reach a certain size, well, then you've got to have redundancy and, and build in another set. And now some people from a financial perspective thought that that was interesting because you've got these upfront costs that you don't have the ongoing software is a beautiful thing because it's recurring revenue, but then that's a, that's a hit to the EBITDA piece. And I didn't get caught up in any of that. I really focused on, we want to scale and we want to scale quickly. And man, the ability to like go into any office remotely. And then we were really trying to play the piece of the provider, how to prepare a provider, like our dental director. Hey, if, you've, if you're coming in, like you've got to review your stuff. You're ready for the morning huddle, which happens before the day. And so you can either come in early or like if you want to review it at night, you can remote in. But with XVWeb and Denicon, you can go look at that root canal you're doing and pull up the images and check those out and prepare your case that you're going to be delivering. And you can do that. And we had providers like that. I could see all of those benefits that were there. And then it was, hey, how do you pick your horse? Because you've got Open Dental, let's see, Dentrix or Henry Shine had just put Ascend out. And then CareStack wasn't around yet. The EagleSoft product wasn't there yet. And then Curve was probably still around. Cur Curve was probably out around that time too. Curve. And then who was the legacy product that Denicon had licensed their code to? QSI, QDW. So there was legacy QSI and then there was QSI Web. And so, yeah, I went really deep on all of that. And Ed Lee, is that? Uh... Yes, it's, it's Lee. It's not Ed though. Richard, sorry, Richard Lee. Richard Lee, there you go. Yeah, and so spent a lot of time with Richard and then selected Denicon. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it was like a... It was interesting because, right, like if you pick Dentrix, it's like IBM. You don't get fired for picking IBM. But at the same time, it was clear that, like, the world was moving. Right, Dropbox was such a great example. Like, why shouldn't we be doing this? Because there's no reason that if a piece of paper, if that disappears, if the server disappears, we're in trouble. Well, that shouldn't be the case. We should utilize the technology as much as we can. And I'm, and so I pushed us towards that and luckily picked an organization that continued to grow. And then Eric and Blake came in and it was a lot of fun then to continue going and being able to offer up 
what I was seeing on our end, because regardless of how deep the entire Denicon team got, no one was sitting there running an office on a day-to-day. And so we'd pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm seeing this. Can you do something here? Because this is where it's causing problems in the practice. It was a great opportunity for all parties because we got to grow alongside it. And really, we had one software. We could tell you anything at any time. And to be at our size, but to be able to do that, at that stage of the game in the DSO industry, we were bleeding edge and far ahead of the curve there, so to speak. No, absolutely. You guys had a a really large impact in the development and trajectory that we took as a company, even as a smaller organization at that time, because it was very uncommon for for groups to be implementing cloud software across a broader swath of their practices. I, I look back and it's kind of as now a Planet DDS historian, you know, we've got True Family. Uh, there was Northeast Dental with Craig Abramovitz that ultimately was acquired by DCA. Then the DCA decided to roll out across all of their offices. And that was like a huge break for the company. Uh, and we've had Dr. Asnes with uh, Premier Dental Care who kind of started at three and now they've got 120 that are that are on the solution. It's like the ability to grow with all of these clients and learn as a company that was just focused solely on cloud software without any conflict of interest with legacy on-prem or other things that you'd have to kind of navigate from a go-to-market strategy really allowed us to accelerate. And I do remember when I joined, we had that video that you guys made and then you sold shortly thereafter. We had to pull it down and no longer use our one video testimonial, but we definitely appreciated the willingness to provide that at the time. So now that you're building a new organization, is there any technology that you're excited about? I mean, there's definitely changes that have taken place over the last couple of years and AI has really burst onto the scene and become very prevalent. You know, as you evaluate the landscape, what is it that has kind of caught your eye? I think that AI part is really interesting because your preparation, I mentioned that morning huddle and historically what we would do is look at treatment that had been diagnosed and but not accepted from a patient. And when they're coming back to like revisit that, the AI can even go deeper and, and going into the images that exist and the treatment plans to really pull that up so that you've got this sheet of, hey, here's everything we as providers have diagnosed from a clinical care perspective. And patients are waiting for one reason or another. And what do we need to do? I mean, because at the end of the day, that optimal oral health and because AI, it just makes you so much more efficient. And I was talking earlier about the increase you know, on the expense side and the labor side. And but that wasn't offset with any higher fees that came from the carriers. But this technology to now, someone else historically would compile that and make sure that we've got the open, run the report or X, Y, or Z. But now with AI going in there and, and helping out the providers, like that's real time and in their hands and no one's spending time compiling it. I think the reactivation piece of what patients haven't like going through one's software and looking from a preventative perspective, who hasn't been in for that cleaning that they should have been in for and reactivating them with using AI technology from a marketing perspective and other pieces there with text, email, call, those type of things. It's all those pieces that traditionally there were lists that were printed off overdue hygiene appointments and then the team was going through them. But now there's a lot of technologies. I think efficiency is is coming in place a lot more. And then on the equipment side, the scanning capabilities, like that's just really interesting and not having to do impressions for, you know, there are a lot of patients that suffer through impressions, you know, they're gagging the whole time. And to be able to just avoid that 
And what we've seen and what we've in, in talking to providers, like there's a, a really good fit in terms of the product that's being delivered from those scans. And so then you have less redos and remakes. And so you're more efficient from a chair side delivery perspective there as well. I've listened to the episode that you recently recorded on Revolutionary Tribes, the podcast with Jody and Dr. Trevor. And great episode. I actually listened to it twice. So I got to get my homework in, learn more about you, and also learn how to do a solid podcast. So it was great. And one of the things you had mentioned when you first acquired your uh, the first three offices with you and Amesh was that you looked at it initially from like a private equity perspective where you're like, hey, this is how we're going to drive the valuation, buy it three times, sell it 10 times. And like, no problem. Like, it's just like, this is just how things work. And then you realized, okay, that's not how things work. And you guys had to learn more about the business itself. And you go and you work in the front office for six months in a couple of your practices. What is something that you viewed initially when you were first launching True that you thought was like a high priority for value creation, that now as you're launching a new business is no longer something that you would focus on or put as much weight on for value creation? I'd say our philosophy, because of our inexperience last time, what we could is focus on is like bottom line. And by that, I mean, are we focused on our agreements with vendors and making sure we've got group pricing and, and those type of things? To create profitability, you've got two different ways. You either grow revenue or you decrease expenses. And I, and I think that there was a larger opportunity around at an office acquiring new patients. And I don't necessarily mean just like the tried and true marketing way of postcards and new patient mailers and things of that nature, but really having an incredible new patient onboarding program. Hey, Mike, thanks for coming to the practice. You've got your normal bag of goodies, but is there, what are we doing that separate us from an onboarding experience for that new patient to then get that referral? Because there's a segment of patients that they've maybe lapsed and they're in pain and they find someone on them. But then there's another segment where no one wakes up in the morning and says, can't wait to go to the dentist. But if we can create an incredible experience where someone might actually be at their neighbors, be in the, at the soccer game and say, yeah, I went here and it was different. And that's all team. That's all people. That's all culture. And I mentioned like the new patient onboarding, because for us, that was uncharted territory. We were learning about the dental industry and building the business at the same time. But if you really could take a step back and programmatically create these different modules for patient acquisition, I think there'd be an incredible opportunity there. And so we're, I'd say, more focused or care more about that this time in terms of that was an untapped opportunity that we didn't take advantage of last time. And if you got time and you're trying to allocate and we just had never been able to do that. So we weren't focused on it anymore. You mentioned people and culture. And one of the things that I've heard you talk about is that we as humans are kind of hardwired to grow and to want to grow and to improve and to get better. And you had mentioned that when you look at your company and when you look at your practices, you're looking to provide opportunities for growth for the folks in your organization. I'm curious what that looks like I know this is a little bit kind of in the weeds question, but what it actually looks like for the various positions within either a dental practice or the corporate organization and, and, and support services for your practices. Let's take the practice first. I mean, a great example is a team member that one of our, our second and third offices, she was in there kind of as a multi-office manager role. When we affiliated with that office, she kept in that role, but moved more over to the revenue cycle side. 
and then continue to grow like and built out a revenue cycle organization and is going to join us again and run that same organization, but is also picking up additional responsibilities in terms of her you know, professional growth. And I'd say that it's opportunities like that because at a standalone practice, if you're the office manager, there's a ceiling there because there's nowhere else to go. And it's creating opportunities and telling the entire, you know, everyone at uh, every one of the offices sharing stories like I just did with you there around one team member was able to do and making sure that people know, hey, if there's other positions that we have within the organization as we grow, I want you to apply for them because internal is always better than external because people know the culture, know the processes and the procedures, and you know, there's not as much of an onboarding ramp. And so it's things like that where as you're growing an organization, you're, you're taking those opportunities and making sure that you're looking inside as well as outside to give people the chance to grow. And then from a support center perspective, same thing if, if someone's in a, let's say, account receivable or account payable role and they're continuing to grow and mature and looking for additional opportunities, like that team will be a single person, then it might be two people and then three and then someone overseeing that. And that just happens like all of the different providers you know, are different uh, service lines within the support center that provide services to the practice. Like it might start out as one person wearing two hats. And then as it becomes siloed and job specific, someone can move into that role. And then as the team is built there, they can have that opportunity as well. But I think it's Kim Scott, Radical Candor talks about superstars and rock stars. And you got to have both of those in an organization, but your superstars want to keep, they want more and they're going to demand more. And you as an organization and as a leader got to keep making that runway available to them or they're going to go somewhere else. And I, it's always hard when someone leaves, but what did we not do to give them the opportunity for them to continue to succeed is it's, it's hard to turn that mirror because you know, if there's built stuff together and then to see them go somewhere else is painful. But at the end of the day, what, what was it that wasn't there for them to continue to fulfill their professional dreams and desires? Do you have mission, vision, values in your organization? And what kind of stock do you put in that as it relates to building culture? At True Family, absolutely had that. And I mean, it was to change people's lives. And hey, how did you do that? Well, we're getting someone to optimal oral health. We wanted to be the best neighborhood dental practice. We didn't want to be the best in the world. We wanted to be the best neighborhood practice. So every practice within True, we wanted to be the best because in that neighborhood, we wanted to do everything we could for that population of patients to deliver them on that to change lives. At Seva, we're going through that right now, putting together all of those pieces. And those are really important because at the end of the day, like, why are you there every day? What's helping you? There's 10 to 15 people in a practice and you think of the number of interactions and the, the steps that, some, that the team has with the patient to make it a great experience and how like one little one can quickly change that? What's the glue that keeps you together? What are we doing collectively here? And it's got to be way bigger than the organization. And having that vision and trying to reach that larger goal is, is very important. And at the same time, it's those can't be pie in the sky, meaning you can't pick core values or you can't pick these aspirational type. They have to be totally present within the organization from a leader perspective. And it can't be fictitious. Like you have to live and breathe it. And you got to look intrinsically and say, am I, do I, and then go from there because everyone has a really good BS radar. And if you're trying to play soccer, but you're a football player, everyone's going to notice. 
And so don't try to play soccer, go play football, but make that football, you make it applicable to what you're trying to accomplish there. And it's a tough exercise because does this work? And then, well, I got to, okay, individually, collectively as a team, management team, how does this all fit together? It's not insignificant. And then rallying around that and, and really hiring to it. Because if you hire to it, people walking and chewing gum, they could do it. You're not asking someone to go against their natural being in terms of those core values for that individual. So that's the perfect alignment that you can get with all of that. And it's it's not overnight. And man, is, is, does it take a lot of time and iteration. But when you can get that in service businesses, like at the end of the day, we're all just people serving our patients. And so if we have that clear, true north, and then we hire against that, and then retain and recruit and promote against that like that's where you're starting to create the flywheel and other things yeah i like that a lot i think it's it's so important that the part about making it an intrinsic part of how people operate day to day and it's a great call out that it takes a lot longer to actually instill core values into an organization than one would think you don't just post them on the wall and then be done with it and have everybody all of a sudden living and making decisions based off of what the core values of the company are. At some point, I think I minimized the value of those. Maybe, you know, if you're a, a self-starter or somebody, you feel like you don't need this like overarching mission or vision in order to go out and like pursue what you're looking to pursue. But as we've kind of embraced this view on, on the Planet DDS side, and every year Eric's like, hey, do these still make sense? Like, do we still embody these? Does this, is this right for where we are in our company today? And so kind of having that constant revision and going back to ensure that it isn't just aspirational, I think is a huge key component to that. Now I'm totally bought into it, but it's definitely, it's taken, taken a little while. So I find it interesting that you see value in that as well. Well, I appreciate your point on, hey, self-starter, like for me, do I need that, right? I'm driven, I've got this, but there's that, well, wait a minute, this isn't about me. You, you know, it's that you've got to change that perspective. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, because what motivates Mike and gets you going, that's great. But now we're thinking about the parts and the sum of them and how that all connects together. So that's like, I absolutely agree with you that for some, how does that fit in? But why well, it goes back to the true North, but the rallying cry that you can all have together really creates this better, it, it gives purpose. And from a cohort in terms of the team members at, at organizations right now, large cohort is millennial aged and being part of something bigger than them is, is important to that cohort and being able to have that opportunity. I heard you talking about being a process-driven guy and you, you gave the example of you opened up a carton of eggs and you were actually putting thought into whether or not you should like grab it from the front or if you should go a different direction with it. I don't know if you ever heard of Peter Atia, but he talks about he's got this little like OCD thing and like they used to, when he was growing up, they would do this thing they call egg fighting and they actually take two eggs out. You crack them against each other. Whichever one is the one that gets cracked, that's the one that goes into the bowl, of course. And then you keep track and you get like a champion, an egg fighting champion. So if you really want to have some unusual process to do with your egg, separate and apart from the efficiency of how you pull them out, you know, we did this for a while. We used to wrap the champion uh, with my 10-year-old son and uh, we'd wrap it in paper towels so that we would preserve it in the carton. And each time we brought out the eggs to make more eggs and we actually had a champion last a couple cartons. So an interesting exercise if you need a new process for how you crack your eggs. Were you pulling out in columns or rows when you selected a competitor for the champion? 
we go from the left to the right, front row back. I'm not sure. What, what is your, your typical sequence of events? You know, I have a pattern there. When I looked at it, I was like, oh, I wonder if I should have a pattern here. So that was the thought that I had that morning. Right, so as a process-driven guy, and I, and I know you have your gallon of water that you drink out of so that you can finish your full gallon, do you partake in any of the current fitness trends, cold plunging, saunas, waking up at 4 a.m. and journaling, any of these things that are like daily habits with you? Or is all of that kind of hogwash from your perspective and you just go about your day as like a normal person? I get up really early, so I get up at 4.30 every day. We have four young children, seven, soon to be five, three, and one. Once it's like whack-a-mole, so once one pops up, then all of a sudden the others do. So if I get up early, I can I get time to myself. And like recreation-wise, like the cold plunge, so I ran track in college, and so I was in an ice bath every day, and I, I loved it. It was awesome. Like I just felt recovery that much better. So I've got a... 100 gallon cattle trough, like or horse trough that you buy at your local farm store. And I throw bags of ice and jump in that thing. But I, yeah, because, and that was just part of the, hey, after a hard workout on, on the track, you'd do that so you could recover for the next day. I wear a Garmin Forerunner, which, like any Garmin watch, I think it tracks sleep. So I like to log workouts and I played football in college too. And my wife was a college athlete, I was a lowly Division three. She was a division one. So, you know, there's that I'm second fiddle here in the household. So we we recreate a lot and like to log those things. And, um, uh, I'd say I always am very active, but I've really started to like, look at the sleep and see, I know that a friend was just staying with us that has the whoop. And so he was like, if I read before bed, I get an 8% increase in my sleep quality. And if I have one drink, it's a 6% decrease. And if I have two, it's an 18% decrease. So it just shows you, you know, like nonlinear for alcohol consumption. And Garmin doesn't have that, but hey, what did I do last night? And did I have really good quality sleep? Because I get like six and a half to seven and a half. If I could get in, which is, you know, you want your eight, but if I could get in between those two and score an 80 every night, like that would be awesome. And I just look back and like, competing in college and studying for an exam and staying up late and just powering through it. I wonder how many times I was on the football field or on the track, like with a really low body battery. That's my holy grail is like, can I get quality sleep every night? Because then if you're recovered, then you can go at it just as hard again the next day. And when you look at it, like if I have a low body that I'm trying to really process and do mental, not mental math, but just like really think through some solutions and process work and things of that nature. And it's not as easy, let alone, yeah. And so I you know, hate the process orientation efficiency and I love to wake up every day and get after it and be able to really, you know, put my head on my pillow. Like every day is a blessing, every day is a gift. There's no guarantee for tomorrow and feel very blessed on what I've been given. And so am I maximizing that every day, both professionally, personally, and then like physically and to love to charge hard on, on all those places there. And I've did a mindfulness-based stress re reduction, meditate, MBSR. And my business partner's like, oh, well, how's that going to go? I was like, oh, it'll be weird. And we did like a half-day silent retreat. And so I didn't absorb it. So, I mean, there's like the meditation journaling. I've gone to the Bell Leadership Institute in North Carolina, and that's helped out a lot. And they've got some journaling that you can do. And I've ebbed and flowed with that. But then other daily things is like the 4.30 wake up, and then I'll go work with a guy that's a Czech practitioner. So it's a kind of, it's not, this is a guy from Nicaragua, uh, not a 
chiropractor and not like a physical therapist, uh, somewhere in between. But uh, so I've got like a 30 to 45 minute stretch routine that I do every morning and taking the two lacrosse balls and laying on them on your spine. And that makes a huge difference. I'm not a spring chicken anymore and still trying to act like one is uh, helps keep me loose and limber. Yeah, that's awesome. The stretching routine is like, I feel like it's like flossing for a lot of people. It's like the everyone knows that you need to do it. And it's like really like hard to actually make yourself get into that practice and be consistent with it. I wore a whoop for a number of years. And so I, I know all of that as well. And it, it's pretty fascinating because it does have the, it's like the feedback loop. It, it asks you questions each day and then you talk about the behavior that you had effectively. And then it will tell you, the, you know, these percentage rise and drops, you know, staring at a, a phone before better drinks. Like this is a pretty interesting one. Do you find any of those practices that you learn from whoop? Are you continuing to like, to have those in your sleep routine to help with recovery or maybe not sleep routine, but just your recovery routine. Yeah. I know what's good for me. I know that like, I actually, it's a, if I lie down and I doom scroll and I look on, you know, Twitter X, whatever, uh, before I go to sleep, that my sleep is worse than if I read a paper book. So if I don't look at a screen and I read a book, it's better. And so I try to do that. That's like one of the practices, one of the easy ones, which actually like makes sense because there's less stimulation. You're reading a book and then it eases you into that sleep. I will say one thing that I bought that's probably my favorite purchase that was not an inexpensive one is the, the eight sleep. And it allows for the dual zone temperature control for yourself and for your wife. You have the mattress. I have the cover. Is this the Tim Ferriss one? Yes. So we live in the mountains and the same friend that came from New York with the whoop, he had off the chart sleep and he's like, I really think it's because the guest room has a lot of windows, so it's colder. And he's like, you know what? It's probably that. Didn't have drinks, was reading before bed, but it just escalated. And I've heard a lot about that and I'm really excited. It makes a huge difference. They say that you have to, your body has to drop by a degree before you're able to go to sleep restfully. And so it actually monitors your temp. And then when you go to sleep, it, it lowers it. And over time, it picks up on your restlessness and it will modify the temperature accordingly as you're you know, stirring. And if you want to wake up warm, it will warm it back up for you by the wake up time that you set. And then it has all the same like metrics and stuff that you're talking about. So I know you're a data guy. It gives you all that stuff. You get your score and like your sleep score and like how many of your REM and your deep and all that stuff. So it's pretty neat. I got to say. How about when you travel, do you find that your sleep is compromised because you don't have that with you? No, because when I'm in a hotel, I can crank it down to 65 degrees because I'm not at home and my wife won't kill me if I try to set the AC on. It works pretty well when I'm traveling too. Couple last questions, we'll wrap up. I heard you talking about your father talking about if you were going to be a, a garbage truck driver. And it's like, hey, it's not about what you do, it's about just being great at what you do. So that's obviously advice that you received growing up that you've carried with you. You just mentioned you've got four kids. Like, what's a piece of advice that you give to them that you're hopeful is going to be something that 25, 30 years from now, when they're on a podcast talking to somebody, they're sharing with the audience as something that they've internalized and it's really become a part of who they are. I put notes in each of their lunches every day. Part of my morning routine is I make lunches every day. And so I grab a post-it and write in there and we talk about things that are in there as well. But uh, like today's was luck is never given, it is earned. And so, you know, that's one where... So, oh, it's serendipitous. I was on the plane next to Mike and 
he was had this dental software business and I got a job there. Well, my guess is the person was prepared in that instance and that when they met Mike, they were ready to perform. So there's always happenstance, but the way that you perform is when given the opportunity, if you can excel, because like the, you know, the ball of life always bounces. And if you're prepared and that bounce happens your way and you take it and you go above average, like that's taking advantage of the opportunities because not because of luck, but because you were prepared. And I really want to make sure that they're prepared in everything that they do. Like it's not just showing up and towing the line and hoping it's knowing that the work has been put in to reap the rewards. I love the daily notes. That's fantastic. Where do you go to learn? What podcast do you listen to? Do you have any favorite books? I heard you talk about, you know, world-class performers want to continue to hone their skills, specifically what they're great at. How are you thinking about that these days? What are you focusing on? Yeah, I love asking for recommendations of friends. And I think that I'm always impressed with a book because, you know, for five bucks on used Amazon, you can get what someone spent their life working on. It's cost you $5. It's crazy. Like the transfer of wealth, if you would, in terms of uh, what a book delivers, still blown away by it. I do like, who's the Iceman? Um, Wim Hof. All right, I'm going to get like five podcasts on Wim Hof. And because I want to understand what it is, you know, hey, let's jump into Wim's head and understand what's going on there. And I found that I just haven't succeeded anywhere that in terms of using podcasts to like learn on a specific subject. So, hey, got to drive X, Y, or Z. Great. Let's get four or five in there and see. And so I've tried and failed there. I continue to like, I think Tim Ferriss is at a really good, the current era tour of Tim Ferriss. He's doing a really good job with his guests of unpacking, not the superficial stuff, you know, like level one, level two, level three. I guess the level three stuff that what's caused this person to make those decisions and really hearing how they're all world-class individuals, but hearing why they did something. I've um, truly appreciated his recent uh, guests and he does a very good job of uh, pulling some stuff out there. And then, yeah, I'd say that's my main podcast consumption and then uh, love books. And I'm doing a lot of stuff on being a parent or children's psychology right now, because I view that as, you know, that's an incredibly important job that I have right now. I looked at when we started True Family, we were building that, like wasn't a parent yet. And so I was consuming business books on how to build a business. And then, you know, and I've gone through a lot of those and there's always new ones that come up and I'll, I'll continue there, but spending more time right now on the kid program because I, I want to do a great job at it. And so how do you do a great job? Well, you go learn as much as you can and, and try. So I, I view that as a, an incredible honor right now and a really big responsibility that I've got to hopefully succeed at. And it's interesting because 20 years from now, I'll figure out how we did. There's no KPI monthly or quarterly or annually right now. There's no year-over-year growth. There is from a physical stature, but yeah, I view that. Uh, so spending a lot of time there right now. And there's some guests on Tim's show that would quote a book or you know mention a quote or an author, and then you go there and then that author highlights a bunch of people in terms of the index or whatever it might be, and then you unpack it that way. So try to spend more time there to be the best that I can there. Yeah, that's great. I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan as well. So uh, it's a good observation. He's like Tim Ferriss 3.0 right now. He's definitely gone through iterations over the years. Do you feel that as a listener? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, when I was talking to friends of mine about launching this podcast, I was like, you know, I remember like the first couple Tim Ferriss episodes where it was just completely different 
than it is now. And like if you go back and you listen to really anybody's and you can see the arc of how things change and get modified over time. And I think once he got really into all of like the psychedelic research and a lot more into psychology just in general. And I think as a result, a lot of the conversations that he has probably combined with the credibility that he's established in the space is allowing for those, those deeper conversations, but they are very interesting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that because it's that psychology piece that is, I mean, because we're all people at the end of the day and your ability to understand or meander through there, I think is picking up bits and pieces from these world-leading experts is, is really helpful. Last question, and then we'll wrap up. Silent retreat. You did a half day. What happened to the full day? Where, where, how, how did that all go down? That was on the prescribed agenda, so I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna go off uh, off agenda there. The book is called Altered Traits. They were seeing if monks with you know ten thousand hours, Malcolm Gladwell could change the mapping within the brain. I was like, wow, that's really pretty interesting. And the MBSR felt like the beginner's version of uh, meditation and mindfulness. And that's all very foreign for me, but wanted to go and, and give it a shot as I reflect back on it. Like I've viewed food always as a necessary ingredient to keep going. It's put it there, consume it, bingo. And we sat there at lunch and they're like, grab a pea, chew the pea, close your eyes and spend time with the pea texture, flavor. And it was really pretty remarkable. But then I quickly reverted back to my old habits of just guzzling stuff down. I could see it there and it's... I. I wish I could do more there. Um, maybe we'll circle back at some point. But yeah, the I can we it was in the summer and we went to a place that has these retreats and like all of the class participants were like, okay, we showed up and they're like, All right, you've got the next four hours and he like walked around the the forest area that they had and um I was like, Okay. I struggled with it, but I appreciated my attempt to try something different. Have you consumed? I have not done a silent retreat or anything like that. The weirdest thing that I've done recently that Eric thinks is incredibly bizarre is I did a 12-hour walk. And so I was listening to this podcast. It was the first guy that ever uh, walked across Antarctica solo. And it took him like 44 days or something. It's like a few thousand miles, some crazy feet. And anyhow, he like challenges people. Like, when's the last time you've really unplugged and just spent time with yourself? And so he says, just walk out your front door and walk for 12 hours. And so I did this a little over a year ago at the end of a 75 hard. And I woke up at like three o'clock in the morning. So it was still September in Arizona. It was going to be 98 degrees that day. And I was like, I want to wrap this up by three if I can. And I just walked out my front door, no headphones, no input, nothing, no technology. And I ended up walking 42 miles over 12 hours and ended up back at my house in pain. But it was a unique experience. So I guess my own silence retreat in a way, but just for the course of an afternoon. And did you have any communication with you, like cell phone? I had a cell phone. I didn't use it. I had everything on airplane mode, silent. The only thing I would use my cell phone for was a map if I got myself lost. But everything else was off. No notifications, no outside communication. Didn't talk to anybody. I sat down once at a Starbucks, four and a half hours in. Decided that if I sat down again, I probably wouldn't get up. And so then after that, it was all just standing. And 42 miles later, I was... Uh, I was back at home. really felt like I accomplished something, though. I started to think about really odd things. You mentioned world-class, and I was like, Dude, I got to be like top 5% walkers in the entire world right now. Like, am I a top 5%? Like, I'm walking 40 miles. That's pretty good. Is that, you know, it's random thoughts like that that started to enter my brain. But it was a good time. I actually highly recommend it. I don't think a lot of people spend 12 hours without inputs anymore. 
And so the opportunity to actually have that time to spend with yourself and think through things is pretty impactful. Like the 42 miles for your body, had you run a marathon before then? No, I had been just walking and running throughout the week. Probably, I was probably running maybe 10 to 15 miles a week. And I was probably walking another like eight to 10 miles. Big lift. It was a big lift, yeah. I, and it was a great pace, like 16 minute something pace per mile. And then um, did you eat? I packed a camelback, I brought a backpack and I had a bunch of power bars and I ate eight bites at Starbucks and uh, stopped at a gas station and ate a bunch of power bars and drank some Gatorade. And that was it. I mean, it was like I said, 98 degrees when I got back. My wife thought I was a moron. She was like, what are you doing? And I even took a day off of work to do it. And she's like, you're taking a day off of work to go walk for 12 hours? I said, I am. I said, sorry, honey. I showed up and walking down the street. Like I see my house and she's driving the other direction. And I'm like pumping my fists in the air. She's just like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? So Yeah, because that's like she's rolled all, all day until three o'clock solo there. Yeah, I've got a great Strava. You know, I don't know if you use Strava to like track when you do running or things like that. So I've got a great one from that day that shows, you know, the route that I walked with this like two and a half mile detour to a Starbucks. Cause like at that point, well, two and a half miles didn't matter. Like I was going to be out, out all day. So yeah, might as well make it happen there. Oh man, that's really interesting. I, I broke my phone last week and it was in the repair shop for 36 hours and I some like not totally detaching, but it was actually very fun. So I've thought about, do I get like a emergency phone for weekends and set down the real phone and like, where's, Hey, hon, I'm here with the kids. If she wants to call me, we can still do that, but not put email or contacts in there. Just, you know, just so you're off, but like, you know, maybe check it in the morning, check it at night, but just not have it there so that you're impulsively responding to it all the time, which we do. I had a boss that used to do that. He had a flip phone for the weekends and then he had a smartphone that he used during the week. And uh, I was like, that's a, that's an interesting concept. I've actually thought about it quite often, but you have to let me know if you end up doing that. Uh, I'll be curious as to what the, what the outcome is. So, all right, well, Hey, we took a circuitous route here, uh, but I really enjoyed the conversation and I, I appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll have to do it again uh, sometime in the future. I really appreciate it. Appreciate all the time you spent and love the questions and looking forward. Yeah, absolutely looking forward to next time. Well, thank you. The Dental Economist Show is brought to you by Planet DDS. To find out more about how cloud-based dental software by Planet DDS helps unleash dentists and their staff to focus on patient care, visit www.planetdds.com. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes by following wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.